Uh, This past week, I had the opportunity to catch up on season two of the Revisionist History podcast. It's led by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. Perhaps you've heard of Gladwell. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's written books like Outliers, Blink, Tipping Point, David and Goliath, uh, some Oh, really, really good stuff. And a year ago, he started a podcast called Revisionist History, where he goes back and looks at things that he feels like have been misunderstood. And he wants to help revise history to help us understand what really took place. Well, little did I know that this past summer he'd released season two. My iPhone wasn't updating. And this week I was doing some things and all of a sudden I discovered an entire second season. So I binge listened to Revisionist History. I know I'm a nerd. It's okay. I'll admit it. One of the episodes was called The Foot Soldier of Birmingham. It's about a statue called the Foot Soldier that's in a park in Birmingham, Alabama. This park is right across the street from 16th Street, 16th street Baptist Church. This is where Martin Luther King Jr. led some of the civil rights marches out of that church. He, you know, they'd get the troops together, say, here's what we're doing. And then all these foot soldiers would then march out in the streets demanding civil rights. Well, on one of these particular marches, a photograph was taken. And it was this photograph right here. Anyone recall seeing that photograph? Okay, I see several head nods. This photograph ended up being put on the front page of the paper the next day and ended up being carried in newspapers all around the nation over the course of the next week. Within a year of this photo being taken, the Civil Rights Act was passed. Most people claim that this photo right here helped move things forward. Well, to memorialize this photograph, a statue was built in this park called the Foot Soldier. And you can see how those statues inspired by the photograph. However, Malcolm Gladwell went and interviewed the creator, the artist of the statue. And the, the artist likes to go by the nickname of Mac. And Mac said that he wanted to draw out the bigger meanings out of the photograph. And so he shrunk the size of the boy and made the boy look like a little more helpless. He, he turned the dog more into a wolf and one of the teeth really bearing. And then he made the cop indifferent, almost like he's blind and, and pushing the boy away. Because that's how most people interpret the photograph. But Malcolm Gladwell being Malcolm Gladwell wasn't content to just interview the creator of the statue as much as he was moved by the statue and really enjoyed his conversation with the artist. He found the boy, who's now an older man. He also found the widow of the cop, and he found tapes of an interview that the cop himself did about this particular day. And what Malcolm said he discovered (laughs) was that the boy wasn't a foot soldier at all. He was actually a student who was skipping school. He wanted to go and see what was going on down at the park because they heard there was going to be a march. So he and a friend skipped out and headed down. But as they got there, they realized they were in the way of where the marchers were going to come and they saw a bunch of onlookers. And the police had created a neutral zone between the protesters and the marchers. And so to get over to the onlookers, the boy said he and his friend started crossing through this neutral zone. And as they came across, that's when the dog lunged at him. Well, then in the interview with the cop, the cop said that he realized his dog was going. So he began to try and pull his dog back and was grabbing the boy, trying to pull him out of the way to protect the boy. We see one thing and discover that there's actually more to the story. This happens to us all the time in life. 
We'll, whether it be through the news or a conversation with a friend or, you know, the gossip at work, we'll hear one thing and we'll begin to concoct a story in our head of what reality is. But then sometimes something else comes along and it helps us realize that there's more to the story. If you are a parent or you are a teacher, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because as the little kid comes and starts telling you the story, you start getting an idea in your mind what happened. And then you hear from the other kids, whether they be siblings or other students, and you realize, okay, yeah, I wasn't getting the truth. There was more to this story, obviously. I had this happen in a really disappointing and profound way one day. Uh, I had a young adult man call me and say, hey, Aaron, I'd like to get together. I'm having issues with my girlfriend. So he came into my office, sat down on my, my couch, and I began to just share some things that he did that really hurt her. But as he's sharing it with me, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, you, what you did was wrong. It wasn't right. But then he's telling me her reaction. And it just, her reaction just seemed overboard. I mean, she was being really, really judgmental. I mean, she was like ready to end this relationship. And to me, like, okay, this was wrong, but this is forgivable. And yet she's not being forgiving. And so I thought, I know exactly what I'll do. I'll call the two of them in. We'll sit down. He'll explain everything. I'll help her see how she should forgive. I'll save the relationship. I'll be the hero. This will be no problem. They came in. They sat down. And suddenly she began to share her side of the story. And I suddenly began to understand why she felt how she felt. Because it turns out the guy hadn't really told me everything. He'd given me one version of the story. But then when I learned more, I realized there was more to the story. Well, something like this happened to my faith. I had the pleasure of growing up in a home where my mom and dad came to know who Jesus was when they were in their 20s. And so they actually began to get excited about going to church and, and growing in this newfound faith. And so even as a little kid, I heard about Jesus. And, and at a very young age, Somehow, I was able to understand things like Hebrews 9.22, which says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Like Romans 6.23, which says that the wages of sin is death. Somehow, in my little mind, that made sense. I got it. And so I understood that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Now, my sins at that time were, you know, yelling at my brother and, and beating him up. But, you know, I understood Jesus died for these things. But what didn't make sense to me was how every Easter, my church would celebrate the resurrection. Now, don't get me wrong. I thought the resurrection was cool. I mean, for someone to die and then come back to death, I mean, that's like, wow. But I couldn't understand why everyone got so excited about it. Because really, to me, the bigger day was Good Friday, the day that Jesus died on the cross. Because that's when he died for our sins. So why are we getting all excited about this resurrection? It, to me, it was kind of like an ice cream sundae. You know, the Easter story, it, I mean, the Good Friday and all that, that's the ice cream Sunday. The resurrection was the cherry on top. Like, nice addition. That's kind of cool, but I can still enjoy the Sunday without that. So to me, the story was all about the cross. And so I carried that story through my elementary years, my teen years, even into my 20s, not realizing that the resurrection was the greater part of the story, that it was just as critical and crucial. And so today, I want to take you a little bit on that journey with me to help you understand why this resurrection story of Jesus is so crucial to the gospel. Because what we see in the scriptures is that when the disciples, the apostles, shared the gospel, they did not just preach the death of Jesus, they also would preach his resurrection. 
And today we've got to see why. And I hope that it will help you realize the power of knowing the rest of the story. And so, Father, I pray that as we come into this, that you would be our teacher, that you would expand this and expound it, that we would understand it in a new way. And in, even if ever, some people here have heard all of this already, I pray it would still be encouraging. It would be just a, a phenomenal reminder for them. But I pray for anyone that some of this may be new, that you would just expand their eyesight, that they would see your beauty, your power, and they would walk away just being in awe of the resurrection. So God, teach us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you've got a Bible or a Bible app with you, open it up to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Two weeks ago, we uh, were studying the roots of communion, the Lord's Supper. And so we went to Luke 22, and we saw how at this last Passover meal, Jesus took out of that Passover meal, established the ordinance of communion. And then, because we were in Luke 22, last week, we just picked up the story right there, because that begins the crucifixion account. So we followed the suffering of Jesus all the way through the Garden of Gethsemane to his death on that cross and, and being buried in the tomb. And that's where we left it last week. So I want this week to pick it up, Luke's narrative again, in Luke 24. So read along with me silently. Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold... Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with, whom, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. All right, skip all the way over to verse 36 with me. Uh, Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking, so as the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. He did not use the door, all right? He's just suddenly there. He stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Of course, he's just suddenly there. He didn't use the door. I'd have been freaked out too. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, And were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
So last week in chapter 23 of Luke, we saw clearly the death of Jesus. I mean, if, if any of us thought that maybe he just kind of passed out up there on the cross, when you heard how brutal crucifixion was, you realized he didn't just kind of swoon and faint. And just to make sure, a soldier took a spear up through his side into the heart. And when he pulled it out, blood and water poured forth. And medically, we know that that is a sign of, of death. So he was clearly dead. That is why when these women head to the tomb, they're expecting to find a dead body there. Now, they were wondering, how's this stone going to get rolled away? How are we going to get in there? But they're expecting to find the dead body of Jesus so they can finish the embalming process. And they're there to kind of honor him because they ran out of time as the sun was setting for the Sabbath. And so they're going to try and finish. And suddenly, he's not there. They, they see these two angels. And the angels are saying, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's risen. He's alive. Go tell everyone. And so they do. They rush back. But did you notice? The disciples don't believe him. I mean, at first, I can kind of understand because normally dead people don't come back to life, especially when you saw the brutal way that he died. But secondly, in Jewish culture, the testimony of a woman was not considered trustworthy. So when these women came back, the disciples are thinking, uh, yeah, you're women. I don't think we can trust you. Which right there tells me this is why you can believe the Bible. Because if you're trying to write an account that's fiction, but you want everyone to believe it really happened, you would not make women the first witnesses. You'd make like Peter or, or James and John. You'd pick one of the heroes to be the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus. But no, Luke points out it's women. Why? Maybe because it really happened that way. And then I love it. The disciples are sitting there talking like there's no way this happened. And all of a sudden Jesus appears among them. And I think he's just got the smile on his face. And I wonder if some of the women are going, don't you so? And then I, I love it. He's like saying, hey, guys, look, you know, I've, I've got the wounds. It's, it's really me. And then he says, do you have anything to eat? They give him some fish and he eats it. And I just can't help but think he has this little twinkle in his eye as if to say, can a ghost do that? Jesus was truly dead. And now he's truly alive. And he's right there, flesh and bone, in their midst. And this changed everything for these disciples. Because what was happening right before this is they were hiding, they were cowering. Because if the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders could arrest their leader and have him crucified, what would they do to them? And so they're scared, they're fearful. They've just lost their, their Messiah. And now they're wondering, what's gonna happen to me? And suddenly he appears. He's alive. And as we're going to see in two weeks, as we jump into the book of Acts, we're going to see these guys now traveling everywhere to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to tell people that Jesus Christ died and rose again. But we see the Bible talk about the resurrection so much. Because I believe in that time, as ancient Greek philosophy was beginning to travel, there was, this is kind of the start of modernism. And in modernism, everything's got to make sense. You got to like scientifically show and prove everything. And, and so as Greek thoughts putting everything together and creating these logical sequences, you start realizing, wait, dead people don't come back to life. That's in our myths, like in our Greek gods. Yeah, we see that there. But as we're starting to experience life, no, this doesn't really happen. And so this thought began to travel around culturally throughout the Roman Empire that people don't rise again from the dead. Once they die, 
they stay dead. So as you have this cultural thought traveling around, you've got people who've heard the story of Jesus. And some of them believed the story. And so they're saying, yes, I'm a Jesus follower. Oh, but wait, people don't rise from the dead? But they said that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they're trying to figure it out. How do they take what the culture is saying and syncretize that with their faith? And so some people started to believe that, well, it, it must have been like a symbolic resurrection. It was a, it was a spiritual resurrection. And the disciples start arguing hard. No, it wasn't just symbolic. It wasn't just spiritual. It really happened. And there's two reasons why they were so adamant in including the resurrection as part of the gospel. Number one, they saw it. I mean, they, they saw it. They could not deny what they knew to be true. Right now, it's October, which means it's the best time for baseball. I love the postseason in baseball. However, I'm not enjoying this postseason as much as I did in 2014 and 2015 because my Kansas City Royals are not in the postseason. I know, you guys can feel my pain. All right, these Cub fans are rubbing it in my face. But in 2014, they shocked everyone and they made it to the World Series. And getting all the way to Game 7, the tying run on third base before they got defeated by the Giants. And then to everyone's shock, they made it back to the World Series in 2015 and defeated the New York Mets in five games. Small little market team. They're not supposed to do these sort of things. And they did it in convincing fashion. Now, if you were to try and come to me and say, you know, it's too bad the Royals haven't won a World Series in like, what, 30 years? I'd be saying, whoa, whoa ti no, time out. It, it's only been two. Not, no, no, it, it, that didn't happen. I'd be thinking, um, I'm a devoted fan. I watched every single game. I saw all of the heartbreaking moments and I saw the best moments. I know what I saw. I can't deny the truth. My Royals were World Series champions in 2015. That's what it was like for the disciples, but even bigger. They knew that they saw Jesus dead, and then they saw him alive. And so that's why they had to preach it. But there's another reason they preached the resurrection. Because it is absolutely crucial to the gospel. Absolutely. It is crucial to the gospel. And this is what I missed as a kid. And I don't want you to miss now, wherever, whatever stage you're in. And so we're going to look today at four reasons why the resurrection is crucial to the gospel. The first two reasons are found in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you know where 1 Corinthians is, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what uh, we call a book, but uh, this is actually just a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was in this ancient city called Corinth. This church was filled with Jesus followers. But if you've read 1 Corinthians at all, you realize this church was a mess. I mean, just an absolute royal mess. So he's trying to correct it, and he keeps bringing the gospel to it. And I find it fascinating that here in chapter 15, there's only 16 chapters in this. So he's starting to come to the end of his book, his letter, and he starts to say, once again, let me remind you of the gospel. There's only a few times in the scripture where we get this really kind of nugget, this definition of the gospel, and this is one of them. And so let's look at it. Chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now let me remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote this. Before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was known as Saul. 
Saul was well on his way to becoming one of the greatest rabbis that Judaism had ever had up to that point. He was well-versed. He was zealous. I mean, he probably had not just the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Jewish scriptures memorized. He probably had the entire thing memorized. Could you imagine from Genesis all the way, I forget, for us it'd be Malachi, but I, I, don't, I forget what, how their divisions were. To have all of that memorized? I mean, this guy knew his scriptures. So when Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, changes everything for him, all of that study and learning that he had, he suddenly looks back and realizes, oh my goodness, Jesus was there the whole time. All of the Jewish scriptures point to Jesus as the Messiah, and they prophesy his death and his resurrection. And so Paul writes to them, here's the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Did you notice? The gospel isn't just that he died on the cross, it's also he rose from the dead. And this launches him into defending the resurrection. The first is this. He wants to help the, them see that this resurrection, it validates the apostles and their message. So he first wants you to realize the apostles saw him. So he continues on, verse 5. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, that refers to the disciples, the, the, the close disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, that would be Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, referring to his moment on the road to Damascus where Jesus appeared. So he's saying... Jesus really did rise from the dead, and he appeared to us. Uh, several years ago, my great aunt Vivian passed away, and so I was living in Cedar Rapids at the time. So I traveled down to Pella, uh, kind of joined up with my dad, and then we drove uh, to Hastings, Nebraska. My, my dad was actually fairly close with his aunt. He'd lived with his aunt and uncle for a couple of years. And so we head to her funeral, and my aunt, you've got to understand, she was an incredibly wonderful, generous woman. Uh, the, the, the church that we were in, they had a balcony that went around on three sides. And they draped some of the quilts that she had made. So the whole place is just decorated with her, her work. And uh, she used to make quilts uh, for, like, uh, babies that were born with, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome or, or AIDS babies or, or, you know, kids that were already, you know, orphans right away. And she would donate these quilts that she made. So just incredibly generous. And she was also very generous with her time. I mean, people would talk about coming over and how Aunt Vivian would just sit and listen. She was such a great listener. And just this caring heart would come out. She was so incredibly kind. As the pastor was wrapping up his message, though, and, and talking about my great Aunt Vivian, he, he concluded it with this. And so if we just go and do like Vivian, then Vivian will be with us. Now, some people take that as comfort. And so I'm not trying to be rude, but honestly, that is hogwash. Because there's my dad and I listening. And once it's all done, I'm headed off to Cedar Rapids. My dad's headed to Pella. And if I go and I act like my Aunt Vivian, and my dad acts like Aunt Vivian and Pella, is she really going to be omnipresent and be in both places at the same time? No. Like, we can honor her. Yeah, we should. My Aunt Vivian was an amazing woman. So we should honor her by going and doing likewise. But she won't be with us. 
Sometimes we take this idea that after someone's passed away, that there's like this spiritual resurrection. Like their spirit's now free from their body, and they can come and be with us. No, honestly, I want my Aunt Vivian to be with God, not to be with me. Because she's going to enjoy that a lot more than hanging out with me. She'd also be really embarrassed, like, that's my great nephew? Oh, man. I think some of the, the, because of that Greek philosophy that was starting to travel around, I think there were some people who were starting to think that, oh, Jesus, it was just a symbolic resurrection. That if we just go and do likewise, that's a way to honor Jesus, and Jesus will be with us. And Paul's sitting there shaking his head going, no, 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 no. It wasn't a spiritual or symbolic resurrection. He really rose from the dead. Don't believe me? Go talk to Peter. Go, go talk to James, his brother. I mean, what would it take you to have you convinced that your brother is the Messiah, the Son of God? Maybe a resurrection would help. Or, or if that isn't enough, how about you go and talk to 500 people? Yeah, some of them have died, but a bunch of them are still alive. And they can tell you what they saw, what they experienced. He really rose from the dead. He's making the point. The reason this is part of our message, this is, the reason the apostles teach this as part of the gospel, is because it really happened. So Paul decides, all right, we're going to do two different logic trains here. One is he's going to kind of come at it from a negative standpoint of, all right, let's just pretend that the, the, the resurrection doesn't happen. All right, that's going to be the first one we're going to look at. And then we'll see kind of a more positive one of, okay, if the, the resurrection really happened. All right, so let's go negative first. Join me in verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you follow? He's saying, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if he did not rise from the dead, then that makes us a bunch of liars. Because we're traveling around teaching that the gospel is Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. But if he didn't rise from the dead, now we're liars, so you shouldn't even believe the first part. But if you did believe it, you just believed a lie. And if it's a lie, then you're still dead in your sins and your faith is futile. It's endless. It's worthless. It's nothing. Now do you begin to see why the crucifixion is so incredibly important? It validates the gospel, this message that the apostles were sharing. But then Paul decides, all right, let's now look at a positive viewpoint. And that leads us into our second reason. The resurrection gives us hope for the future. Gives us hope for the future. This positive uh, logic train is found over in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word first fruits there refers back to this idea from the Old Testament where you would bring an offering to God that when the harvest was happening, you wouldn't, I mean, if you think about it, you'd get all excited about your harvest. Like, yes, finally, I've got some corn or some grapes or, you know, whatever you're growing. And you'd want to start taking that and eat and enjoy. But God would tell the people, no, bring me the first fruits. The first. I know you're going to be excited. You're going to want it for yourself. Sacrifice. Give it to me. That's why you often hear in Christian churches, they'll talk about the, the first 10% of what you make set aside as an offering to God. Plan to give it as part of your worship. Next time you're at church, give it to a missionary, give it to someone in need. 
The first part of what you give, give away the first fruits. Paul's using that idea now of saying, of this resurrection of the dead, Jesus is the first, right? So he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So on this logic train, he now takes us back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and he refers back to Adam, the first man. Adam sinned against God. He rebelled when he ate the forbidden fruit. And that ushered in sin, which brought death. And so, to counteract that, God sends Jesus, the true man. And through this man comes life. And now there can be this resurrection of the dead. And so, in Paul's mind and the other apostles, this resurrection gives us hope for a future, that there will be this resurrection. First, a spiritual resurrection, that we're dead in our sins spiritually, but when we place our faith in Jesus, we come alive, but that in the end, there will also be a resurrection of us. Now, if you take that positive idea that he had, that logic train, and tie it with his first one, you begin to see that he's saying, so if Jesus really rose from the dead, then our message is true. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And when you place your faith in this, it means that death is not the end. It gives us hope for the future. So in other words, no matter how dark it gets in life, no matter how down you get, that even in the middle of your depression and your anxiety, it's not over. You're not dead. There is always hope. And this is part of what the resurrection shows us. It gives us hope for a future. All right, a third reason that I think the resurrection is crucial to the gospel. And that is that it not only validates the apostles' message, it also validates the message of Jesus. It validates the message of Jesus. If you were with us last week, you, uh, as we were looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, you would have uh, heard me go to John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, because we looked at this idea that how Jesus not only went through this brutal crucifixion, but he went through it willingly. He gladly came for us. He did it. But Jesus, in John 10, 17 and 18, said that he laid down his life. We were looking at how he's willingly do it, but that's not all he said. So look at it with me again. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you hear it? He's saying... I'm going to willingly lay down my life because I can take it back up. I can come back to life. I will resurrect myself. Which means, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, then it discounts pretty much everything he taught when he was on earth. That's why Paul, at the end of his, uh, in chapter 15, as he's kind of concluding up that argument on the importance of the resurrection, he says in verse 32 there, if, if the resurrection is, is found false, if it's not true, then that means Christianity is a farce. And if that's true, then we should just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Like, it, like basically, it's hopeless. And, and so therefore, if it's not true, 
then yeah, let's just eat, drink, and, and that. Because the message of Jesus is that he died for our sins, and now he sends us to go and be a blessing to the world. But if it's all fake and false, why are we even worried about going to being kind, showing love, helping out? Now, let's just be selfish. Let's just eat, drink, taking it all in. However, if it is true, then it changes everything. There are all sorts of people who've prophesied their death. I mean, heck, I could do it right now. Right now, I'm telling you, one day I will die. All right, and I will be proven to be a true prophet on that moment, okay? I can safely say it because right now, as far as I know, the mortality rate is still 100%. So I'm pretty confident that I'm gonna be found true on that. So it's nothing for some cult leader to say, I'm going to die a great death. Okay, that, that sucks for you, but all right. But for someone to say, don't worry, I will rise from the dead. Okay, yeah, now, now they're loony, all right? We're pretty much going to start to discount them. But when they actually go and they pull it off, it makes you have to stop and realize, okay, you're not who I thought you were. Now there's someone you listen to. And now as you realize they prophesied their own death and resurrection, and they were true. So what about everything else? Is it also true? And now you really begin to look at the life of Jesus and you begin to follow him. Because if someone can do that, we've got to listen to him. And that leads into my fourth point, that the, that the resurrection sets Jesus apart. Absolutely, unequivocally sets him apart. There are all sorts of religions out there. Most of them were started by at least someone whether you're considering you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Judaism, you know, most all of these religions had some founder. And I'll say that most of these religions, they're, they're trying to create and craft a worldview that's going to better life for people. And, and so there's all these you know, you know, tenets and ideas in, in them trying to tell you how to live your life. Now, I personally think that the teaching of Jesus sets him apart from any other religion. But I know people who would completely disagree with that statement. They, they would say that they've studied Christianity and they studied these other religions. It's basically all the same. Well, I disagree, but you know what? I'm going to concede that point. I'll just, I'll give it to you. We'll just say that the things that Jesus taught matches up with everything else. And yet Jesus is still set apart. Because of all these other religions, their founders died and are still in the grave today. Jesus came back to life and ad absolutely and utterly showed he wasn't like these others because these others, these other founders, they were just human. Jesus showed he was fully human and fully God. He is utterly set apart from anyone else. That is why every Easter Sunday, people gather together and they burst forth into song because they realize that their Jesus is unlike anyone else. They realize that the gospel message is that he died on the cross according to the scriptures for our sins. But he also rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And that message there validates, validates what the apostles have taught us, which is why we continue to study this thing. It gives us hope for the future. It helps us see that Jesus can truly be followed because he is the true prophet who said that he would give his life and take it up again because he is God and he has authority over even death itself.
And that should be celebrated. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate. We're going to burst forth into song. We're going to sing about the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to pretend that it is Easter Sunday. Because this needs celebrated more than once a year. We're going to open up the communion tables. Typically at this time in the service, we're taking a very reflective look. The, the scriptures teach us that we are to come to the, the elements and examine ourselves. We shouldn't come to this lightly. But today, I am going to invite you to do communion just a little differently. That you realize that that bread and that cup, while it represents the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed for you, it doesn't mean that was the end. Because it's not. He came back to life. And so this is party food today. You are to take and ingest to let it cause you to praise God who gave his life for you because he died for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. So Father, I just pray right now we'd have a party. We would have fun right now worshiping you because this gospel message is proven to be true. Because Jesus, you didn't stay in the grave. You gave your life gladly and willingly for us as hard and as difficult as that was. But yet you came back to life so that we could enter into a relationship with you. And so we say, thank you. So Father, I just pray that you would hear our praise today, that it would just come forth because you are worthy of it. And so God, I just pray right now for anyone who does not know you, that today would be their day of rebirth as they see the resurrection of you who came out of the grave alive that it would cause them to want to place their faith in you. Because if someone can claim that they're going to die a crucifixion and yet rise again from the dead and then go and do it, you deserve to be followed. And Lord, I pray for anyone that finds themselves in their own dark place, spiritually or emotionally, that you would just help them to be resurrected emotionally, that they would trust you and they'd place their confidence and their faith in you and they'd walk out of here feeling a little lighter step because you are God, you are good, and you've done this for us. So God, I just pray right now that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that you'd be in this place as we sing forth and burst forth in song and prayer, thanking you for the resurrection of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Would you please stand?